0: Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert health care to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. This episode of Walk Talk features a panel discussion led by Lori McNichol,
1: Clinical Nurse Specialist, Wound Ostomy Incontinence Advanced Practice Nurse, and a past president of the WOCN Society. During this episode, Lori sits down with her fellow speakers, Dr. Michael Gray, Joanne Ermer Saltoon, and Dr. Dia Kent to discuss their general session at the WOCN Society's 50th Annual Conference entitled, Setting the Standard for Body-Worn Absorbent Products, Results of the WOCN Consensus Conference. The session discussed the history of body-worn absorbent products and the results of the WOCN Society's Consensus Conference that was held on October 19th through 21st, 2017. Keep listening to learn more about their findings and what's to come in the near future.
2: Thank you for listening today. This is Lori McNichol. I'm a clinical nurse specialist and wound ostomy continence nurse at Cone Health in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm also a past president of the WOCN Nurses Society, and I was the moderator of this year's Setting the Standard for Body-Worn Absorptive Products, the results of the WOCN Consensus Conference, and I'm delighted to be here today with my colleagues and co-workers as we um worked together in this project for the last seven months, and they are going to share their areas of expertise and particularly their areas of specific contribution to this project today. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Gray, Joanne Selton and Dia Kent. I'm going to let the three of my colleagues introduce themselves to you and then we'll get going with some questions. So, Dr. Gray, as task force chair, if you'll begin with introducing yourself to our audience today.
3: Sure, Lori. So, my name is Michael Gray and I'm a professor with the Department of Urology and the Department of Acute and Specialty Care Practice with the School of Nursing and the School of Medicine at the University of Virginia. Most important to today's conversation, I'm editor-in-chief of the Journal of Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nursing, which is our official journal.
2: Yes, wonderful, and thank you. Joanne? Joanne ermer Sultoon.
4: I'm a family nurse practitioner in Mason City, Iowa. I'm also the co-director and faculty for Webwalk Nursing Education Program, which is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm at a Vascular Wound Center in Mason City, and also I do an outpatient continence clinic in Mason
1: City, Iowa.
2: Yes, thank you very much, Joanne. And Dia, Dr. Gray.
1: I'm Dr. Dia Kent. I serve professionally as the Director of Risk and Quality for Community Health Network in Indianapolis for a large home care and hospice agency,
2: and I serve as the wound section editor for our journal, JWFCN. Wonderful. Just to refresh our listeners today, the WOCN Society did hold a consensus conference to identify current clinical practice gaps and define the standards of care for individuals who use body-worn absorptive products for the management of fecal and urinary incontinence. The goal of that project was to develop evidence and consensus-based statements that result in the development of a manuscript ultimately an evidence and consensus-based decision support tool around this concept. But we have to go back to the beginning and why we did this project and what the role of the wound ostomy continence nurse is in continence care. For that, I'm going to turn to our task force chair, Dr. Gray. Dr. Gray, can you speak to that for us?
3: Sure. So let's start with a basic description of what continence products are. So the International Continent Society, working with the International Consultation on Incontinence, have a very major text that is now in its sixth edition. And the urinary incontinence books, many of us call it the Urinary Incontinence Bible, defines categories for incontinence products. And they include things such as urinal devices, bedside toilets, multiple continence age, and one of the most important categories within this would be absorbent products. There are basically two categories of absorbent products, under pads that are attached to a bed or a chair or some seating surface or some support surface and body-worn absorbent products. And that was the focus for this consensus conference.
2: Understood. And I think that that phrase, body-worn absorptive products, is new to most of our listeners. They're uh, less familiar with that, and I know that there are many things in that category. Can you give us an idea about some of the products, the representative products that would fall into this category of body-worn absorptive products?
3: Okay, so body-worn absorbent products then are specifically worn by the individual as a piece of their clothing. There are three Broad categories that the task force designing these are closely based on the ICS and ICI guidelines, and they include pads which are inserted into the individuals underclothing, briefs, which are an all-in-one- type device that is worn they have been previously called diapers or nappies, but this word is not preferred because of its obvious pejorative implication when worn by an adult. And the final is a garment that has absorbent properties, but it is pulled up as a piece of underclothing might be. And it has an elasticized waist and uh, often has elasticized legs.
2: Thank you. I think that would really help our, our listeners narrow down this focus. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a, a history of these types of products, maybe the, how they have evolved over the years and um, what our members are seeing in today's practice.
3: And of course, the the use of absorbent products has been absolutely critical, particularly in infants and children prior to the age of toilet training. So back in the more ancient history, there were no particular products that were especially absorbent. So the idea was some level of containment. Native peoples often use moss type devices, linen and cotton because it has at least some limited absorbent abilities was very popular. I wish to add that when we talk about swaddling and placing an infant in swaddling clothes, this is often a linen wrap that does several things including containing fecal and urinary output. The challenge for us in the modern world is to understand that they change those on average every three days. That's a change. (laughs) Fortunately, that eventually gave rise to a greater use of products that had thicker cotton or other materials and that finally led to development of fluff pulp, which does have absorbent properties and was able to wick urine away from the skin and into the product. One of the most important advances in this area came during the 1980s with the development of superabsorbent polymers and these superabsorbent polymers were able to much more effectively than fluff pulp and certainly enormously more than older types of materials were able to grab a hold and to pull moisture away from the skin and to do that with a very small profile. That is, it didn't take a lot of actual product to create a good amount of absorbency. All of the technologies began with infant or nappy diapers in children prior to the age of toilet training. And one of the most important developments at the end of the 20th century was the rise of adult absorbent products that were designed uniquely differently than were those products for infants and children.
2: Wow. Thank you very much for that. I, I think that all of our listeners will think about the time that they came into this timeline, that they may be more familiar with products before the 50s. I know that some of my co-workers have mentioned when cloth diapers were the only option available for their own children. And now they, of course, are being introduced to these very thin, very light, highly absorbent products. So thank, thank you for that nice review and how it segues into the products that we are learning about and talking about when we talk about these these body worn absorptives, particularly the differences in those that are available for males and females. And I, I'm going to come back to you because I'd really like to explore a little bit more about the product lines for for male incontinence, things like shields and leafs and the, the other terminologies that are coming. So if you'll be thinking about that, I'm going to turn to Joanne now and ask you to speak to us a little bit, Joanne, about what we the task force really had to do in terms of preparing for this consensus conference. The type of literature review that was conducted, the resources that were required for this, and ultimately the uh, number of articles that this task force had to review before we could prepare for a consensus conference.
4: Sure. We were charged with doing a scoping literature review, and we were looking for findings and gaps in the evidence regarding this body-worn absorptive products. Saying that word is a huge Mouthful, so I'm just going to refer this as BWAP. And so uh, we can maybe develop a little rapping song or some B boxing thing or <laughs> a jingle, so to speak. bewap BWAP. So if you hear us refer to that, it means body worn absorptive. I think products. the
2: listener is already um, applauding for that. They really, that's wonderful. Oh,
4: it's a hard one to say. So our task force, we decided to do a scoping literature review. And if you're like me, I was thinking, What's the difference between that and maybe a systematic type review? And a systematic review, you think of, this is very pointed. It has a focused research question that the researcher is looking at in the literature. But a scoping review is more of a broad question. You're trying to find answers to a very broad question. You're looking at concepts. What, What is the evidence? What isn't? there uh, for us. So that's what we were looking for regarding BWAPs. So our broad question was, what is the evidence and the gaps in knowledge regarding BWAPs? So we employed the services of a professional librarian to take a look at our electronic electronic, uh, databases. And those were the usuals like Medline, CINAHL. We looked at your Cochrane databases for systematic uh, reviews we gave her our MESH terms and other related terms regarding BWAPs. And you if you're like me too, here's another one. Said, what do you mean by MESH terms? So, that stands for medical subject headings. And uh, you can think of this like a th- thesaurus. It develops a vocabulary for the things that you're looking for. So our mesh terms were containment devices and incontinence pads. And then we gave her some other terms in regards to looking in the electronic database, like inserts, briefs, continence products, uh, so to speak. So what she came back with us was over 1,100 citations. And it's like, whoa. And so how do you uh, downsize that so that it's manageable, so to speak? And so we had some inclusion and criteria that we gave her. Let me step back with that before she came up with these citations. So it was all about adults. Okay, it was all care settings. It was all study designs, just because we knew that there was limitations within the literature regarding this topic. It had to be English language. So our exclusion criteria was essentially if it wasn't English, we didn't look at it. If it was before the year 2000, we didn't look at it. If there was gray literature, something that gave us some good, solid conclusions, so to speak, it was excluded as well. So we ended up with that astronomical number of 1,152, to be exact, uh, citations, and we eliminated a lot of them just by looking at duplicate titles or non-English articles. So that got us down to maybe 422. And then the group looked at the title of the article. Was it relevant to what we were charged to do. So if it wasn't, it was thrown out. And then we further eliminated it by reading the abstracts. If the abstract wasn't pertinent to our topic, it was thrown out. And then once we found those abstracts, it's like, hmm, okay, everybody got to read the full journal article. And then those that we kept was around 32. We had four other resources that we looked at, and they were given by other experts that they suggested... And we looked at some ancestry research as well.
2: Wonderful. I think that really provides people with the idea that is truly an evidence-based tool. There there was an up-to-date literature review conducted and considered by this task force. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Key findings. We have an idea of how uh, much of a review that was conducted, and then how did you did you grade or or rate these last resources? How did that part of the process go? One of the things that we did as a group was we looked
4: at each study's methodology, and so we graded them to see how relevant they were, and how well they were done. And we used a tool called a Johns Hopkins Nursing Evidence-Based Practice Appraisal Tool. And we read these articles. Each one of us did this, and we did this appraisal tool. And then we had three options. It was A, high-quality uh, study, a B, good quality, or C, low quality, or there was major flaws within the study design. So we wanted to look at our evidence to see how strong it was in providing us this guidance
2: that we needed, and so um, that's what we did. So each one of you rated the evidence in this way. We did. How handy that there were three of you that we could use almost on inter-rater reliability among this little group. So um, how were you fairly consistent in that? And
4: you know, we each did it separately, but we came together as a group and we talked about our grading and we had further discussion if we didn't agree. Okay. And then uh, the rest of us, by Dr. Gray's excellent wisdom, provided us with some good guidance in regards to why a certain uh, study
2: might have been a grade B versus a C or an A. Mm. What I do like the listener to appreciate is that there was is robust discussion at almost every level of this process, not only the literature review, but also the grading and ranking of these studies and resources. So already quite an impressive amount of input. Please continue. So looking at our studies, uh, we had 31 of them that we were grading.
4: Just to give you a flavor of the quality, we only had one that was an A or high quality uh, study. We had 11 of them that were B or good quality type studies. And we had 19 that were low quality or had some major
2: uh, methodologic flaws in regards to them. Wow. An impressive finding. And thanks for your cooperation um, to the three of you on going through the rigor of that process. Before I I turn to Dr. Kent, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the key findings in all of that. So we have all of those studies and we've ranked them. And what did you surmise as a group from this to to the key findings? With these studies,
4: what we did was we developed 45 evidence-based studies from the key findings. And so with that, we did another layer of grading of those key findings. So we had 45 of those evidence-based studies. 16 of those uh, key findings actually came from the incontinence textbook Dr. Gray was uh, alluding to earlier, and it talked about women and men with light urinary incontinence and men and women with moderate to high urinary incontinence. And we had some very strong statements that we could take home, so to speak, In regards to that about what men and women prefer. And then with our other evidence-based studies, they were based on those 31 studies that I talked about before. And we kind of arranged those into five different categories. Product performance, design, effects of BWAPs, dignity, quality of life,
2: wait times, and pad changes. I think that those groupings were essential because, uh, as I recall, when we got our, our group together, the group of experts that participated in the consensus conference did not come to debate the evidence. The evidence was as you, the task force, brought it to them. I think what was the charge of the consensus conference then was really to discuss gaps. And I'm so interested in how we developed evidence based statements that we could present to a group of experts and then to kind of frame our discussions around gaps that were identified. Dr. Gray, I was wondering if you would be willing to talk about, to us a little bit about the value of consensus process. I know that we have all seen evidence-based pyramids and, and we know the how important studies are, but when we review studies, we're, we're in an area like body-worn absorptive products we don't really have the evidence. So why would the society be so invested in these consensus conference proceedings?
3: Yeah, that's an excellent question, Laurie. I think that I'm going to quote you, actually, and start out by saying that when we say consensus, we are not talking about water-cooler discussion consensus. We are talking about a formalized process. As you said earlier, the ultimate goal of this project is to develop a clinical decision-making algorithm. And we know that in the modern world, algorithms underlie everything. They help us to structure our clinical decision-making, whether we are consciously aware of following an algorithm, we simply do. I once used a very simplistic thing talking about an algorithm with a lamp. The lamp doesn't work. What's the first thing you do? Cut on the light. The lamp doesn't work. What's the second thing you do? Check the bulb. The lamp doesn't work. What's the third thing you do? Replace the lamp. Even such simple decision-making follows an algorithmic progression. So how do we apply this to the very complex clinical decision-making that we're called on from a day-to-day basis? And the answer, in my mind, is to use the methodologies that have been published that have been proven to be effective, to be fair, to not simply favor the individual with the loudest voice or the greatest passion, but to look at multiple professionals with diverse geographic areas, diverse practice settings, and to the extent of possible interdisciplinary representation so that the algorithm represents the best possible consensus based on equal input from all that participate?
2: Well, I think that answers the question for so many as these Evidence and consensus based algorithms are presented as products of the WOCN Society. That we bring the evidence, and as we just heard from Joanne, it's a rigorous process to do a scoping literature review and to decide what our evidence based decision nodes are on any algorithm, and then to fill in those areas with highly qualified geographically diverse and practice diverse professionals, experts in the field, subject matter experts, to help us fill in those nodes on an algorithm that are not supported by the evidence. Well, let's talk about that consensus conference that was held last October. I hope you're getting a flavor for this. That was October of 2017, and this a group was able to work diligently through the literature v- review process, host the consensus conference, and then summarize the consensus conference findings in a manuscript that was submitted for peer review and ultimately accepted in the Journal of Wound, Ostomy, and Continence. That consensus conference, uh, so we use the three task force members that are here with me at the table today, as well as 17 other formally described content ac- experts, subject matter experts around the table and this group was presented with statements that were developed to fill these gaps these decision nodes that were not supported by evidence and Dr Kent had a lot to do with the development of these statements and the ultimate presenting of these statements to our to our illustrious panel so dia let's talk a little bit about the development of the consensus statements that you as a task force presented to the group.
1: Certainly, before we came together as a consensus panel, a consensus conference, we reviewed the evidence as has been described, and we came up with many draft statements to be considered for consensus by these wonderful subject matter experts. And so what we did was prepared those participants by sending out a few resources for them to be reviewed to, to get them in the frame of thinking of consensus according to the subject we we're going to discuss. And then when they got there, we opened this, the panel discussion when it came to that part by leveling the playing field by throwing out some assumptions so that everyone could sort of clear their minds out of my practice pattern is or over here we do this. And instead, we we threw out assumptions such as the fact that we were talking specifically about adults who were wearing these products for fecal and urinary continence, that the current evidence talked about that we already could see that users used multiple things multiple ways without any specific panacea there was no magic bullet no magic solution for any one problem or any one type of person and that absorbent products were an essential element of incontinence management and that while they can significantly improve the quality of life Again, there is no magic panacea, so what do we do? And so we decided that we needed to remind them that absorbent products didn't replace assessment, it didn't replace timeliness of care, and everyone came in with those things in mind to review the consensus statements that we had developed. The purpose of the discussion was to robustly decide if those consensus statements were okay, if they needed to be amended,
2: or if they needed to be thrown out. Yes, and speaking about that process, going through these statements, I'm going to ask Dr. Gray if you will talk to us a little bit about the consensus process and how we got 17 people plus three task force members to agree. We are all a spirited group of professionals, and I can imagine that that was a kind of a lively process, but um, talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Well, and I reflect right back to you, Lori, that it all starts with a moderator who is able to keep the task force on target and to lead through the discussion. So the first step is always to simply present the statement as written and then to allow all of the consensus participants to do an initial vote. And that comprises I agree with the statement as written, or I disagree with the statement as written. And then the moderator is going to bring back the most important question, if we do not reach that initial consensus, which in the vast majority of cases, we did not. And that statement is, how can we reach consensus? How can we modify this statement so that it can reach consensus, again, across different geographic practices, across different care setting practices. So individuals respectfully, but I will say robustly, will provide input. They will say, in order for this to make sense in my region, in my practice setting, in my worldview, we need to change a word, a phrase, a focus, and we allow three rounds of that. Again, initial vote, round of discussion, round of discussion, round of discussion. After each round of discussion, we will have a modified statement. And that statement may reach consensus, time to move to the next one. If it doesn't, one more round. If we're unable to reach consensus after three rounds, we consider the statement to have failed to reach consensus and it's specifically identified as such. And this does two things for us. Number one, again, it's this all important representation. It must not be the person at the table who's loudest, are most passionate. It must represent equally the individual who is more reticent, but no less expert. It also must represent a variety, a diversity. This is what makes the statement robust, strong, and as high a level of quality as it can be without robust supporting evidence.
2: And remind our listeners again, at what percentage is agreement?
3: That's an excellent question. So you would think maybe anything above 50%. Well, we all know that you can flip a coin and get that. So when we consult the statisticians about this, they say if you want to be absolutely certain that it is not simply random, then you want to go at least to 75%. The group wanted something a bit more robust than that, but not such a high bar that important or essential statements lost their ability to reach consensus. So we set the bar at 80%, which is a tradition among previous groups.
2: Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. When we talked a little bit about the different products, I was wondering how this group got their arms around common language. I think that particularly in the area of incontinence products for men who are in the outside of the acute care setting, I think I, I noticed a big variability in terms. Did we bring forth a glossary or how did we level set our vocabulary? And I will open that up to any of the three of you. How would you, how can we address and let people know how we determined on a common language for the continence nurses around the table?
1: Well, we really spoke to each other about some of the terminology deficits while we were in the room and then in networking. And ultimately, this particular group, it was so evident we needed to create a glossary that would accompany our publication to get everybody on the same playing field. There are so many variable terms. Again, going back to just geography what island do you live on? What part of the world are you from? Because our recommendations aren't just for the United States. They are global. And so what could we do about that? So ultimately, because there is a high variability in language as far as different terms. And Dr. Gray alluded to diapers and nappies, and now we should be calling those briefs. We've talked, you alluded to leafs, and who knew that a leaf had anything (laughs) to do with urinary incontinence? We instead developed this glossary for ease of use and to try to
2: provide some standardization and conversation. Thank you for speaking to that. I do think that that component of the manuscript is really something I would refer our listeners to so that they can begin to use this common language among their colleagues, staff nurses, and of course their patients so that we can begin to put forth this common language. I really appreciate that. Let's go to results. We had a successful consensus conference and I know that at the end of this talk together, we'll talk about what our next steps are, but I don't think yet we have put our arms around the results. So I I think I would look to Dia to speak to this. I think that this consensus conference put forth a record number for the society, society anyway, of consensus statements, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about those things upon which we agreed. Certainly. So you are correct. We have
1: history making numbers with the BWAP. BWAP produced 42 consensus statements, which is a huge number. Previously, there have been 11 or maybe 21 or maybe 32. And so for us to come into 42, that was, that was history making, which is quite appropriate for our 50th year. Um, We might as well, we should have gone for 50, but we got 42. Um, and so after we were all done with those 42, which took those two days, which uh, sitting in a room is more tiring than walking around the block 42 times. All that thinkology at work. There was steam coming agree. out. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So we ended up with these 42 statements. And ultimately what we did as a group, though we started out with some preconceived categories, what really made sense was instead of talking about just people who had light urinary incontinence in the day and they were a man or a woman, it really ended up making sense. These consensus statements sort of took on their own identity in their own life and fell very naturally into several categories. And so these 42 statements came into categories such as assessment or perigenital skin care or special and unique populations such as altered cognition or bariatric patients, community dwelling, Interestingly, because the literature is in such a gap for setting-specific, ultimately, we still cannot say, setting-specific, you must use this. It's highly recommended that this is this. Instead, it's very patient-centric, which is very refreshing. In this day of healthcare
2: where we're supposed to be patient-centric, what the evidence really showed us is that's the right way anyway. What a wonderful transition. I think that participants in this project really... Walked away with a sense of pride at that we can go back to value analysis teams and say that one product is not going to meet the need for every patient, and here's why. And I, I think that that will take us into our segue into what is next. I have two questions. I'm going to ask Dr. Gray, first of all, what is the role of the wound ostomy continence nurse in continence care? And because some of our members are thinking, you know, this is wonderful, but I really, I leave this up to our value analysis team. In fact, some members have come to me and said, you know, I've been trying to be a diaper-free facility. So why is this so pivotal to us?
3: Excellent question and so deserving of our consideration now more than ever. I remind you that WOC nurses are intimately involved As an example, in caudia prevention, one of the first and most important steps in caudia prevention is fewer indwelling catheter days. The direct result of that is always going to be increasing the number of patients who are experiencing urinary incontinence. The inevitable result that was predicted as far back as WCN's collaboration with the American Nurses Association for caudia prevention guidelines was, an increase in incontinence associated dermatitis. Current best evidence suggests that that increase is happening exactly as predicted. The WOC role in continence is I believe integral to the uniqueness of the wound ostomy and continence role. We are not what some might call classic continence nurses who focus on interventions uh, specifically Pharmacotherapy would be one of those interventions. Pelvic floor muscle training might be one of those interventions. Instead, I would suggest that we focus on the most prevalent intervention of all for continents. The one that we can say is so broad that it would be considered a public health intervention almost, and that is the use of absorbent products. Research consistently shows us that between 75 and 90 percent of individuals, community dwelling and those in long-term care or assisted living, are going to be using absorbent products. So, this use has implications that go across. The implications of you being an absorbent product speak directly to WOC expertise and That is because of their potentially negative influence on skin health. And this to me is the exact intersection when the WOC nurse comes forward and her or his unique role shines so spectacularly. It is the intersection between continence management, containment, and maintenance of healthy skin. In 2009, We had a statement about the role of the WOC nurse in continence management. And almost as an afterthought, and I think that's an historical reflection, use, selection, and evaluation of absorbent products was mentioned. In 2017, another task force has come forward. And I personally challenge that task force. The use, selection, and evaluation of body-worn and other absorbent products must receive the same attention that we give to selection of ostomy products or topical wound care products.
2: Outstanding. I do believe this is a pivotal moment in WOC nurse history as we evaluate our practice and decide which new thing we are going to add to this professional suitcase that allows us to better advocate for our patient population. I am historically aware of our practice patterns, and I would say that this is an opportunity to those in our field. It's an opportunity for us to reach out, take advantage of these new tools and information, and to really embrace this aspect of our care for our patients' sake. I would like to talk, before we go to the end and to our summation, is that this is the beginning of the project. I know those around this table are dedicated to this cause, and I am personally proud and honored to work with them because there is more to go and much more to do. Joanne, I'd like you to talk about what the next steps for this task force are. Uh, we're celebrating the manuscript, we're excited to share the new information with our listeners today but we're getting ready in the next several weeks to begin on the next phase of this project. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, together as a task force, we're going to meet
4: together again in August, and we're gonna be looking at developing some type of algorithm to help people who are users of BWABs and also uh, consultants, continence nurses to help assist those in selecting those. I was just reviewing in my head, thinking about some of the studies that we had uh, looked at, one in particular was done in 2017, and it looked at users of BWAPs and were those products appropriate for their type or amount of incontinence. And it was over 60% of those people, what they chose were not appropriate for their type or level of incontinence. So they clearly need some kind of guidance on the selection and the use of the products. I'm also getting some aha moments for myself uh, thinking about that way back when I first got the bug to be a continence nurse. Uh, one of my mentors always says, We've got to move beyond mop, sop, and blot. And we're talking about b-wops." so you can mop, sop, blot, bewops, you know? I hear a song in the air. Here we go, so- <laughs> here we go. And that's so true, you know? It's like, we got to figure out why they're having troubles with their bowel and bladder control. But you know what? It's coming around a full circle. Yes, that is the number one management technique. These people need dignity and they need social continence. And body-worn products provide that so that they can get out and do the things they need to do. And so developing this algorithm will be paramount. Maybe even for the general public, we can make a difference. And when they go to the store to figure out how they can select the right product for their type of problem. So it's exciting.
2: It is exciting. And I look forward to working with you on the next arm of this project. I think it's safe to say that this discussion is one to be continued. We will have many more updates in the future regarding what this task force continues to achieve. And I believe that we will be presenting an electronic decision support tool and an algorithm at our annual conference next year in Nashville, Tennessee. I want to again, thank my fellow speakers, my colleagues, Joanne, Michael, and Dia. And to our listener, thank you for being with us today and stay tuned.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk.